Good morning, everyone. Please excuse me with if I have to stop every once in a while and blow my nose or cough a little bit. I suffer a little bit of allergy, which I think some of you are experiencing as well. We're going to start off this morning from a few clippets out of 1 Timothy chapter 4. And our, the title of our class this morning, our consideration, Serving Yahweh in 2011 with the subheading of the faith in the last days. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Verse 6, If thou put the brethren, and this is Paul talking to Timothy, if thou put the brethren in these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Those things being the things of the truth. Verse 13, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And verse 16, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. In the mid-1800s, a group known as Christadelphians, Brethren of Christ, arose representing a revival of the Abrahamic faith as believed and practiced by the apostles. Liberated from the shackles of apostate superstition, they stood out as, a unique, as unique among a sea of confusion and darkness. Being able to demonstrate biblical truth through harmonized belief with the scriptures and a realization that such beliefs require a standing apart from the general practices and pleasures of the world at large. They understood that they were to be a people truly separate, embracing the hope of Israel, Elpis Israel, and a witness of true service to Yahweh and His Son, they were in fact a shining light of hope and joy to a perishing world. Now, as we stand here in September of 2011, we sincerely believe that we are on the verge of the return of Christ. To initiate great cataclysm, the elimination of man's self-rule, or at least his perceived self-rule, and to usher in unparalleled joys and prosperity for this earth. But as we live on the threshold of great change, what is the condition or state of modern Christadelphia in their service to Yahweh, both individually and collectively? If Christ were to return today, how would he find us serving him and his Father? What would be his assessment of the state of those claiming to be now, we are sadly aware, and it was brought up several times at Bible school this summer, we were sadly aware that he, in fact, questioned as to whether or not he would find the faith at his return. Now, if we could go to Joshua chapter 2, or excuse me, Joshua chapter 24. And I'll apologize in advance. We're going to be flying through a lot of different principles and concepts and, and flying through scriptural passages as well. So if I don't slow, enough, slow down enough uh, as far as reading scriptural passages, I, I apologize for that in advance. 
In Joshua 24:14, we read the command. Now therefore, fear Yahweh and serve Him. The question that goes along with that is, how do we serve Him? And of course, the answer that is given in sincerity and in truth. So as we consider the subject of service to Yahweh, we have to understand it in reference to sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Paul, in speaking to the Corinthians, in addressing some of the issues and problems that they were not dealing with at the time, he made sure, by exhorting them, commanding them, to serve God with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. And Christ stated in John 4.24, And they that worship Him must worship Him, worship God, in spirit and in truth. So again, as we consider the subject of service to Yahweh, let it be noted that truth and the way in which we approach and practice such truth is paramount to acceptable service to God. Though we face some very unique and extreme challenges in this modern era, the principle of acceptable service never changes, as has been demonstrated by the consideration of worthy of old, worthy of old, worthies of old over the past few days. And we know that the truth and how it should be applied never changes. But in 2011, throughout Christadelphia, there are various views and interpretations as to the meaning of such service and growing diversity as to interpreting what biblical truth represents and how it should be practiced. Among our group of unamended Christadelphians, there is growing division and fragmentation, growing division on various fundamental principles, bitter disagreement on prophetic interpretation, varying degrees of fellowship practices and varying degrees of rejection or tolerance of worldly practices and pleasures. We have assorted views of support or non-support of different ecclesias. We go our separate ways to different Bible schools, gathering functions, based upon our individual taste or what to what is or isn't promoted or tolerated at these places. Some refuse to compromise on the truth. Others have been willing for the sake of social connectivity or sympathies to go with the descending flow, shifting away from earlier positions and not even realizing it at times. We are a household divided, united in name, but going in different directions. Whether we will still attempt to hold firm to the old paths of Christadelphian belief and practice, whether we claim to still hold firm but have lost a perspective of the old paths and therefore tolerate things that should not be tolerated, or we have in fact been carried away by various winds of doctrine. So as asked by Pilate, Pilate asked the question, what is truth? As we have many differing and shifting definitions being played out as to what it means, and therefore differing views of how to serve Yahweh in these last days before the return of his son. With that question in mind, what is truth? We have provided a subheading, which we've already mentioned. I don't have it up here, but of course the, the subheading is under Serving Yahweh in 2011 is the faith in the last days. 
as we are to serve God in truth. We hope this morning to lay out a panoramic, fundamental overview of unamended Christadelphian foundation doctrines. What we mean by the word doctrine is based upon its truest scriptural meaning, and that is the word teaching. It is a word that encompasses the facts of what is to be believed, hoped for, and how it is to be practiced. Now, under the term of doctrine, we hope to focus on three general areas. What we call, first of all, the rudimentary foundations, what typically is referred to as doctrine itself. But rudimentary foundations are the atonement leading into the promises. The sure word of prophecy is another area. And our walk in service to Yahweh. All of these are intertwined and inseparable concepts that fall under the umbrella of scriptural doctrine or teaching. What we commonly refer to as doctrine is prophetic in its implications. What we've referred to as prophecy is deeply, and it's already been mentioned this week, is deeply entrenched in atonement-related principles. And without a proper walk, without a proper walk, enlightened and motivated by the truth, all scriptural teaching is made null and void in regard to our own personal service to deity, manifestation of his name, and individual salvation. Now, this will probably come across as a lesson of sound bites. And we fully expect that there will not be agreement with everything that we have to say this morning, nor in our approach. But as our time is limited, we hope to, at the very least, provide a fundamental synopsis of the faith that was once, in much more unified expression, embraced in our community. But, for various reasons, it is often not discussed and constantly reinforced in these times. How can a structure stand when the foundations themselves are neglected? As Peter understood his duty, stating in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, let's go ahead and look that up, 2 Peter 1, 12. And I'll say the whole, the whole chapter itself is, a, is, a, is an exhortation or series of classes that could be presented. But in 2 Peter, the first chapter, Peter reminds the believers into three main areas of belief. He talks about the promises. He talks about walking according to those promises. And he references the sure word of prophecy. And Peter understood his duty because in the 12th verse he says this, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. I will not be negligent. Now, in Numbers 14.21, The unifying, unifying and overriding doctrine that unifies and flows throughout all of scriptural teaching is summarized in this verse. For as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. It is by this principle 
the grand scheme of God manifestation, that we are to understand the purpose behind all principles of scriptural doctrine or teaching. We can never, ever lose sight of that principle. In the New Testament, we have a summarization of scriptural teaching in a word, the gospel or good news. Scripturally defined as the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. This gospel is not limited to the New Testament, but is founded and developed throughout the Old Testament record. We are even told that to Abraham, this gospel or good news was preached. Generally speaking, we can state that the gospel deals with the future establishment. Let me pull this up here. The gospel deals with the future establishment of a kingdom on earth to the glory of deity to be ruled by an immortal race <coughs> Excuse me, through a process of justification and reconciliation through a sacrificial representative of the race, a representative, not a substitute, Jesus Christ, accompanied by a faithful and obedient probation in overcoming the flesh, will be exalted and rewarded with eternal life and inheritance of this earth, the gospel. Christendom at large views the gospel as something exclusive to the New Testament, viewing the Old Testament as merely a series of nice stories for moral guidance. Now, this is partly responsible for the gross error that blankets their misguided conclusions. So, too, in Christadelphia, we have a growing segment that we might call New Testament Christadelphians who fall into grave doctrinal error and drift towards assimilation into mainstream Christendom due to an ignoring of Old Testament principles as an essential and inseparable foundation of what is further elaborated upon in the New Testament. Now, with that introduction, we jump into what we consider as rudimentary foundations. And what I have up there is a list of literature that has been very important to me um, and I think is, is should, be, should be on our bookshelves. Uh, and if we've read them once, I think we need to read them again and read them again and read them again. I don't think we have to run to our local Christian bookstore to find guidance and things of truth. And we'll show a list of things as we go into each one of the areas. Uh, we've got Elpis Israel, of course, Eureka, uh, which a lot of people think in terms of prophecy, but there is much doctrine or much things in, regarding the rudiments of our, our faith in Eureka. Phanerosis, World's Redemption, The Great Salvation, Christmas Stray, The Declaration, The Law of Moses, From Eden to Eden, Rectification, Regeneration, Adamic Condemnation, which can be, all be found in Brother Williams' uh, selected works, The Real Christ, Doctrine of the Atonement, Blood of the Covenant, Sin Condemnation, Alienation and Reconciliation, the place of the Abrahamic covenant and the salvation of mankind, the imputation of Adam's sin, the way of tree of life, and of course, our unamended statement of faith. This is not a complete list, but these are things that we feel um, should be read. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God, the Elohim, created the heavens and earth. 
Hebrews 11.6, we are reminded of the most basic of scriptural doctrines. For he that cometh to God must what? Does anybody want to throw that out? Must believe that he is, or in fact, in the marginal reading, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Simple to us, not so simple for the world to comprehend. It is this most basic of realities that has to be embraced, along with a fear of God. Fully comprehending and surrendering to the absolute primacy, prerogative, and creative force of He who is the source of all things living and inanimate. The Father, El, El Shaddai, or the strength of the mighty ones. The infinite source of all universal energy and creative force. Through the agency of His mighty ones, has created the earth, this earth, and the universe which surrounds it. Now, some men might recognize the existence of God, but very few are willing to fully surrender their finite understanding to, in humble submission, to know the only true God through acceptance of His revealed will, the truth, and His true plan and purpose for this earth and mankind upon it. In the creation of the earth and all of its living organisms, the Elohim fashioned a creature made in their likeness, equipped with an intellect capable of obedience or disobedience, with a sense of moral responsibility and creative abilities and the facility to store and apply knowledge. And man was deemed very good. In this new creation, man was placed in a specially created garden with two unique trees, as we know the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man was charged with a specific command that he could eat of the fruit of all of the trees, but he could not partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, with a specific penalty that in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In a deliberate and knowledgeable act, it is recorded to us that at the necessary, the necessary prompting and lie of the serpent, that Adam and Eve, through the application of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, disobeyed the simple command given them, and they partook of the fruit of the forbidden tree. It is our personal belief, it is my belief, that the authorized version correctly translates the meaning of the penalty. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Or in other words, that the penalty had reference to a sentence of execution or a cutting off that was to be carried out the very day that the transgression was committed. This is the clear and unambiguous meaning of the original Hebrew idiom that was used, which some margins read as dying thou shalt die, known as an infinite absolute. An infinite absolute is a word that ends with ing. But there are two kinds of infinite absolutes. One expresses emphasis when it immediately precedes the finite verb, and the other indicates a duration or time when it immediately follows it. In this instance, 
Dying. The infinite absolute of dying precedes the finite verb in the original Hebrew, indicating that this phrase represents emphasis and not a duration of time eventually leading to death. And there are numerous scriptural passages that employ this same Hebrew idiom that demonstrates this fact. And this is some information that we have from the Practical Grammar for Classical Hebrew, uh, where it's defined, and then Bollinger refers to it as a figure of speech or poptoten, which means for emphasis. And I've got many different scriptural passages that demonstrate how that is used uh, throughout the Old Testament passages. Now, we respectfully, we respectfully note that there are many brethren that believe that dying thou shalt die indicates a duration of time. Brother Thomas talks about this in Alpha Israel. And that Adam and Eve were condemned to a gradual process leading to the finality of death. And by appearances, it was seen that this was what, in fact, happened. And according to the added curse in Genesis 3, of return to the dust and all of the unpleasantries associated with the process, Adam died 930 years later. But this did not satisfy the Edenic penalty, as was clearly expressed in the Hebrew and reflects, reflected in the authorized version. And before we proceed any further, we want to make it clear that we do not believe, we do not believe, that whichever view one might take of dying thou shalt die represents a fundamental divide in understanding, as long as the principles and requirements of condemnation, justification, and reconciliation are properly understood. But we do believe that understanding the Edenic penalty, the divine decree and law, as a cutting off on that day clarifies the events that follow and makes clear how we understand the fulfillment of divine justice through the representative sacrifice of Christ. There was, in fact, a cutting off that very day. As an animal was slain, and Adam and Eve were given coats of skins to cover their exposed, now unclean, condition. Before their sin, they were deemed very good. But now their moral and physical existence was tainted with the uncleanness of sin and unacceptable before Yahweh. In providing skins, an animal had to be slain and blood shed in the process. The animal sacrifice could not provide justification from the Edenic penalty in and of itself, as it had no moral or physical relationship to the Adamic transgression. But the Edenic sacrifice was in fact typical of the sacrifice that God would provide through the offering up of his only begotten son. In Revelation 13.8, we have the reference, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, this being in reference to Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In and of themselves, Animal sacrifice had no inherent efficacy, as we are told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Whether it be this Edenic sacrifice or all other animal sacrifices that would follow. But they did provide a provisional efficacy due to their figurative connection to the ultimate sacrifice, Christ 
who as a descendant and representative of the Adamic race would himself be cut off. Isaiah 53.8. Let's turn there. Isaiah 53.8. Isaiah 53.8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Again, speaking of Christ prophetically here. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And then Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Daniel 9 and 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. Again, Messiah shall be cut off. And this was accomplished through the shedding of his blood, fulfilling the divine justice required by the Edenic penalty, and providing the means of escape from death. If the Edenic penalty represented a process of decay, eventually leading to death, then why would this same process have not been sufficient for Christ if he would have lived a life free from sin and died of natural causes? I will repeat that. If the Edenic penalty represented a process of decay, eventually leading to death, then why would this same process have not been sufficient for Christ if he would have lived a life free from sin and died eventually, of natural causes. The fact of the matter is that shed blood was required as representing the cutting off of life. In witnessing the animal sacrifice, Adam and Eve would have understood that they, that should have been them. But we're being taught, along with the promise of the seed of divine mercy, but at the same time that God would not set aside divine justice against sin and that an individual would be provided to satisfy the requirements of the penalty while at the same time mercifully providing the means of redemption to fulfill God's purpose to fill the earth with his glory. We always have to keep that in mind. The death of Adam and Eve would not have accomplished this. The sin in the garden did not hinder, it did not hinder or derail God's plan and purpose. It merely provided a different track or path to the fulfilling of God's purpose, the way of the tree of life, as opposed to if Adam and Eve had been obedient to the divine command. Now, Adam and Eve had been spared, but not without a demonstration of vital principles to our own relation to salvation. These are, in fact, vital principles to our own relation to salvation and not without consequence. First, Adam and Eve made confession of their sin before God. And this was not a passing of the buck, as some might think. They confessed their sin. They admitted what they had done. Second, 
There was a declaration of faith as Adam perceived that their lives were going to be spared by calling the woman Eve, life or life spring. And a recognition of the role of the seed of the woman as prophesied in Genesis 3.15 for the salvation of man. Third, there was a provisional, a provisional sanctification an imputed righteousness that was not their own, provided them through the shedding of blood, a divinely appointed ceremony. And number four, they were put in a probationary position of having to prove themselves through actual, demonstrated righteousness of their own. Righteousness was the first imputed to them, and they had to follow it with Righteousness, practiced righteousness of their own. But all this did not restore Adam and Eve to the original position they enjoyed before the sin. The consequence of the sin, despite justification from the penalty, are seen in the Adamic curse. Let's turn to Genesis 2.17. I know these things are very basic principles here, but I find them to be very thrilling to consider. Genesis 2.17. No, excuse me, I'm sorry. Genesis 3.17. I apologize for that. And unto Adam he said, or the Elohim, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return into the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Now, Justification did not restore Adam and Eve to their original position. Did not restore Adam and Eve to their original position before God as very good creatures. For they were now of the sin-flesh nature. Nor was their original position in relation to the garden allowed to continue. As a matter of fact, they were driven from the garden, away from the access of the tree of life. Though justified, they were not allowed access to the eternal life that the tree of life offered. Now please make special note of this. As we continue to have the false doctrine in our midst that justification brings us into possession of eternal life, spiritually, legally, or what have you, the cherubim and flaming sword, or destroying flame, was provided to keep or preserve the way of the tree of life a way that has been followed and defended by a remnant throughout the ages. But as of yet, final access to eternal life is denied. It is denied until probation gives way to exaltation and reward in the coming kingdom. This whole 6,000-year period is in fact a journey for man to come once again into Eden as we follow the way of the tree of life. This final destination has not yet been achieved. 
Our connection to Christ's sacrifice reveals that life to us. It's revealed to us, and it is made accessible, opening up a probationary path back to what our first parents lost, but as of yet, is not a possession in any sense. I cannot say this emphatically enough. Is not a possession in any sense, legal, spiritual, or physical until final judgment is passed in regard to our own moral standing before Christ. And I think the chart that Brother Bachman painted many years ago demonstrates that and demonstrates our unamended heritage when it comes to that understanding. Now, the natural question arises. What effect did this have on the Adamic race? We know that the world at large embraces the lie of the serpent that thou shalt not surely die. And therefore, all religious elements from Catholicism to Hinduism, and even some elements of Christadelphia, embrace this lie to a certain extent. And of course, those of the world, the immortality of the soul. Those who understand Bible truth recognize the inherent mortality of mankind and the finality of death. But to say that man inherited mortality from Adam, though very true, does not completely satisfy the question. There's more to it. Article 5 of our Statement of Faith summarizes the matter this way, that Adam broke this law and was sentenced to return to the ground from whence he was taken, a sentence which in effect, as a matter of consequence, that's what effect means, defiled and became a physical law of his being and was transmitted to all his posterity. This condemned and defiled condition is the result of Adam's sin, and is the primary or root problem of mankind. Though Adam and Eve themselves found legal justification due to their own moral uh, recognition of their transgression, the consequence of their transgression due to the law of condemnation and physical consequence became an implanted fact into the very condition of human nature and was therefore passed along to all of their descendants. Due to the sin of Adam and the condemnation that God pronounced upon him, all mankind inherit the following in summarized form. First of all, we know that man is, in fact, mortal, a dying creature. No qualities whatsoever of immortality found in him. All men are born under a state or condition of condemnation to a perishing death due to no fault of their own but due to the fact of relation to Adam. Romans 5.12 Wherefore, as, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death, death passed upon all men, in whom all have sinned. Verse 15 of that same chapter of Romans. Young people, turn that fifth chapter up, please. Romans chapter 5. Let's read that again. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, in whom all have sinned. Verse 15. Through the offense of one, Adam, many be dead. Verse 16. For the judgment was by one, again, Adam, to condemnation. This condemnation, Greek word katakrima, 
a law or pronouncement, is a divine decree, a legal pronouncement of death. It does not refer to merely the condition of mortality, which is nothing more than the natural course of decay. It is a decree of death, a permanent cutting off or perishing that all men have inherited from Adam. Verse 19 of Romans 5 tells us that as by one man's disobedience many were made or constituted sinners, this has reference to the fact that we are born into a state or position of relationship to sin. From our very birth we are a defiled creature with our very existence, our flesh considered to be sin in the eyes of God. Now, we know that there are two applications of sin in the Scriptures, and Brother Thomas brings this out wonderfully in Elpis Israel. First of all, to our condemned, corruptible, and unclean state that all are born under. And if this corruptible condition is not controlled, and there has been only one man that was able to overcome it, it then leads to our own acts of transgression. This is an inherited condition in human flesh which was introduced into human nature by Adam and Eve, and in God's eyes, in God's eyes, even before it bears fruit in actual transgression, is viewed by God as a sinful condition or state, and itself is in need of justification. Regarding the physical properties of this sin condition, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.18, and again, let's turn that up, Again, regarding the physical properties of this sin condition, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7.18 states, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And in verse 23, he refers to it as the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, due to man's inherited relationship with this sin constitution, and only compounded by personal iniquity. As sin creates a breach between God and man, all men are born into a position of alienation or separation from God and His righteousness in regard to relationship and the terms of salvation, the constitution of righteousness. All are born alienated from the constitution of righteousness. Justification through the required means is necessary to bridge this condition of alienation or estrangement from God. Whether Jew or Gentile, as we are told in Romans 3.19, that they are all, that they are all under sin. Now, lest there be any thought that God's dwellings with man are unfair, we must be reminded that Yahweh would have been fully justified to destroy Adam and Eve shortly after their transgression, but he did not. And though all men inherit the consequence of the Adamic sin, God has most mercifully and without the slightest indebtedness to man provided the means of escape from sin and condemnation to the glorification of His holy name. Again, the glorification of His holy name. This takes us back to Genesis 3.15 where the promise was given of a seed. In speaking to the serpent, who now represented sin in all its manifestations, whether it be physical, moral, and later political and religious. The Elohim stated, 
And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. What we are told here is that a seed, though himself affected by the sin condition and all of its consequences, by being bruised in the heel, a temporary setback, would himself destroy sin by his work, fatally bruising the influence of sin in himself. Adam and Eve understood, they understood, that their salvation rested upon the work of this promised seed. We know that over the course of time of the manifestation of the seed as Jesus of Nazareth, who was born possessing the same condemned and defiled sin nature as all men, but through a life of perfect obedience to God's will, he overcame sin's flesh and offered himself as the perfect sacrifice through the shedding of blood and the public condemnation and physical destruction of sin's flesh by being raised up on a stake in crucifixion. And who at a later time will physically destroy once and for all the sin flesh nature in his followers as well as destroying the serpent influence in all of its political and religious manifestations as well. But we'll get more into that in just, in just a little bit, probably in the next class. Over the course of time, the details regarding this promised seed were further revealed under the terms of what we understand as the covenants of promise. As chosen by God and due to demonstrated faithfulness to Yahweh's commands and absolute trust that what God promised he will in fact perform, through the covenant of God with Abraham, we see the foundation of the entire plan of salvation for mankind to be worked out through Abraham and his descendants, both a single and multitudinous seed. It must be understood that such promises were given to the Jews and not the Gentiles. And it is only through divine mercy and special allowance that the Gentiles can be grafted into the terms of the covenant. It is the Jewish nation or commonwealth that plays a central role in the development and eventual fulfillment of these promises. Now, Brother Thomas refers to the Abrahamic covenant as a divine legal instrument. You find this in Exposition of Daniel, page 43, which includes parties, terms, an oath, heirs, a seal, and a confirmation. Now, a summarization of these terms are as follows. Out of Abraham, God would make a great nation. A multitudinous seed as the stars of the heaven and then as the sand that is upon the seashore. He was promised a sizable land grant centered in the land of Canaan. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river of Euphrates, which we know has not been fulfilled. And this expands further to political dominance over the whole earth. The promises referred to as an everlasting or an age-lasting covenant. The seed is promised to join in on this everlasting covenant. We're told that kings would come out of Abraham. That a special singular seed of Abraham would have possession of the gate of his enemies. In other words, this individual would defeat all enemies and rule over them. That all nations might find a blessing through this singular seed as well. Now, to King David, an expansion of terms was given based upon the Abrahamic covenant. 
and what Isaiah 55.3 refers to as the sure mercies of David. Now, such are summarized in the second, uh, second chapter, or uh, second book of Samuel, chapter 7. And with that, we know that there's a permanent dwelling place and peace for the children of Israel promised there. A permanent dwelling place and peace for the children of Israel. David was told that a seed was to sit on the throne of David to rule over the kingdom of God. And that this individual would be both son of David as well as son of God. And that though David would die, he would personally be a witness. The terms of the everlasting covenant are plainly stated. But death stands in the way of the fulfillment of these promises. Hebrews 11.13 tells us, and this, was, this has been uh, uh, described and mentioned uh, very, very wonderfully throughout the weekend. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. The rudimental and prophetic outcome of these promises, though not directly stated, but clearly implied and elaborated elsewhere in the scriptures, are as follows. The hope and need for resurrection. The hope of eternal life guaranteed as, as the only way that such future promises can be realized. Sorry for the typo there. Promises could only be confirmed and realized through the shedding of blood and resurrection of the promised seed. Let's turn to those. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. Isaiah 49, verse 8. Speaking of Christ, Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation I have helped thee. And I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. So a covenant of the people to establish the earth and to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. And the Zechariah 9.11. We read here, and this is directly related to the principle of resurrection. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. And then Hebrews 13.20, in regard to the individual promised seed himself. Hebrews 13.20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And we know that that blood is representative of Christ. And a couple more points, and then we'll go ahead and, and take a break. But it goes on that the promised seed of Christ would be the primary beneficiary of these promises. We have to understand that Christ is the primary beneficiary of the promises. And of course, and then the last point is faith in God's promises, along with the shedding of blood required for justification. Faith in God's promises required for justification. And before we proceed any further, we hope that it be understood as we talk about these more fundamental concepts that this has everything to do with our service to Yahweh 
in 2011. We'll go ahead and take a break.